0: Good morning. Our scripture today is Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit Here, each of us in his own la- native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But the others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved."
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you today. If I say the number 155, I'm sure all of you will know exactly what I'm referring to. Should be pretty obvious to everyone that I'm talking about the number of shopping days left till Christmas. (laughs) Now, it's risky for me to bring that up at the start of my sermon because I have a feeling that at least a third of you right now are checking my math to make sure I'm right, and probably another third of you are now thinking about shopping for Christmas. For those of you who are still listening to me, let me explain why I brought up Christmas. Christmas is a unique holiday in that it is a religious holiday that Christians celebrate, but it is also a secular holiday that many non-Christians celebrate. We don't have a lot of holidays on the calendar like that. This morning we're going to be talking about another dual holiday, Pentecost. Pentecost is the only holiday that both Jewish people and Christians celebrate. And we'll be getting into a little bit of why that's the case. Before we get there though, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather once again to read your word together, to study your word together, and to learn how to apply your word together. We trust that you are here with us this morning, that you will lead us into the portion of your truth that you want to use to change us today. We believe your word has the power to change our lives while we are assembled here together right now. And we believe your word has the power to change our lives in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. We ask you to use the next 40 minutes or so to improve our understanding, to correct any errors in our practice, and to make us more like Christ. We thank you for what you are going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Pastor Ryan began our summer sermon series called Commissioned. He talked about the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Galilee after his resurrection but before his ascension. Pastor Ryan explained that we are commissioned to go, to baptize, and to teach. In other words, that's what our mission consists of, going, baptizing, and teaching. As we continue the series, we're going to be looking at select passages from the book of Acts and how they relate to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Acts 1.8 records Jesus' final words to his disciples. It is a verse that many of you have memorized, and it really describes the theme of the whole book. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, the book of Acts is our training manual for how to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and be witnesses to the world around us. We're going to be looking at the passage Linda read a few minutes ago, namely Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. I've enjoyed studying and interacting with the passage as I prepared for today, and I'm excited to share some ideas with you about when evangelism happens. That's the title of my sermon, When Evangelism Happens. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Let's stop right there. This verse includes a lot of information for us. First, it tells us when the event is taking place. It's on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the seven appointed feasts for the Jewish people described in the book of Leviticus. Four of the feasts were in the spring, starting with Passover. The day after Passover was the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days. The third feast was the Feast of Firstfruits, which was on the first Sunday after Passover. The fourth feast was Pentecost. Which was also known as the Feast of Weeks because it occurred seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. So Pentecost always falls on a Sunday as well. The purpose of Pentecost was to celebrate the first wheat harvest of the year, so it was also known as the Feast of Harvest. Pentecost is a name that comes from the Greek word for 50th, which refers to the fact that it is 50 days after the Sabbath following Passover. On our calendar, Passover or Pentecost is typically around the end of May. The other three feasts were in the fall. They included the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also a 7-day celebration. Of the seven feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths were times when Jews who were able to were expected to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Because Pentecost was in the late spring, it usually had the best traveling weather. So if Jews from other countries could only travel to Jerusalem once a year, Pentecost would be the feast they would travel for. Scholars estimate that as many as 100,000 to 200,000 Jewish visitors were in Jerusalem for Pentecost when the city itself only had a normal population of about 35,000. Furthermore, as an appointed feast, Pentecost was a day when people didn't do any ordinary work, so they were not preoccupied by their jobs. So the event we're going to read about was time for God for maximum impact. It also makes sense that it would happen on a feast day because Jesus had been crucified on Passover, in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and resurrected on the Feast of first fruits earlier that spring. Perhaps the most significant aspect of the timing of this event is that it was 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven. I'll come back to that idea in a few minutes. Verse 1 also tells us who was involved. They were involved. Who are they? The answer to that question isn't completely clear. The nearest antecedent is in verse 26 of chapter 1, which talks about the apostles But if we look at the whole first chapter, we see that the apostles were part of a larger group. Verse 15 tells us that there were close to 120 people total, including women and and possibly children, too. I think the they in verse 1 of chapter 2 refers to the larger group, not just the apostles. So we have identified the when and we have identified the who. Verse 1 also tells us the where they were gathered together in one place. The place is certainly in Jerusalem. It was probably close to the temple or even part of the temple complex. It could have been the upper room that is mentioned in verse 13 of chapter one. It must have been relatively large to accommodate 120 people. What verse one has not told us is what they were doing there. They were there because Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. We see his instruction in Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Before Jesus ascended, he told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. That was 10 days earlier. And how did they pass the time during those 10 days? Verse 14 of chapter 1 tells us that they were devoting themselves to prayer. Another way to think about it is that they held a 10-day prayer meeting. That brings me to my first point in your sermon notes. Evangelism happens when disciples pray. Evangelism happens when disciples pray. Seven weeks earlier, the disciples were gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem as a band of fearful students whose teacher had just been executed. Then, over the course of 40 days, they were encouraged by seeing the resurrected Jesus. Just before Jesus ascended, he gave them an assignment that probably seemed daunting, if not impossible. But he also promised that in a few days, he would give them the resource they would need to complete the assignment. It seems, therefore, that the disciples were in a state of anticipation. And the way they handled the anticipation was to pray. I assume they were praying that the Lord would send the power from on high that he had promised. What's pertinent for us is that Jesus has given us the same assignment. We are to make disciples of all nations. And we have the same resource the first disciples had. So if the disciples devoted themselves to prayer, we ought to devote ourselves to prayer too. More to the point, we need to devote ourselves to praying for evangelism opportunities. We need to devote ourselves to praying for our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers who don't yet know God. We need to devote ourselves to praying for the eyes to see witnessing opportunities when they arise, and the wisdom and boldness to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise. If you want to get an idea of how to do that, spend some time with my wife. Daria prays for opportunities to share the gospel, and she believes that God will provide opportunities. So when opportunities present themselves, she isn't surprised. She doesn't hesitate and say, let me pray about it. She's already done her praying, so the next step is to share her faith. And God gives her opportunities. I don't know that he gives her more opportunities than anyone else. I think she is just really attentive and really good at taking advantage of the opportunities given to her. A few years ago, a high school classmate of hers invited us to visit him and his family near New York City. A couple months later, we were able to work out the details and go. We arrived late on a Friday night in October, and shortly after we got to their home, the classmate asked Daria to share her testimony of how she became a Christian. We were surprised at how quickly and easily the opportunity arose, but we weren't surprised that it arose because we had been praying for it. So if you devote yourself to praying for opportunities to share your faith and the power to do it, God will give you opportunities. That takes care of verse 1. We have 20 verses to go. (laughs) Let's read some more starting in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them, rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Write this down as the second point in your notes. Evangelism happens when disciples are filled with the Spirit. Evangelism happens when disciples are filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is another way of saying being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It means that the power of the Holy Spirit is being expressed through us. We need to understand how to be filled with the Spirit, but before we talk about how to be filled with the Spirit, I want to give you five facts about the Holy Spirit. The first fact is that the Holy Spirit is God. We say that there is one God in three persons. The term we use for that is the Trinity. God is a tri-unity. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the concept certainly is. Critics of Christianity sometimes accuse Christians of believing in three gods, but that is not correct. We believe God is one in essence, but three in persons. Admittedly, the idea is hard to get our minds around. The best analogy I've ever heard, or at least the one that resonated most with me, is that the Trinity is like sunlight. Sunlight contains visible light that we can see, but we don't really feel. It also contains infrared light that we can feel as heat, but we don't see. Finally, it contains ultraviolet light that we neither see nor feel, but we do experience changes as a result of being exposed to it. All three are equally forms of electromagnetic radiation, and all three travel at 186,000 miles per second. Every analogy breaks down if you push it far enough, but the Trinity is somewhat like sunlight. We don't see God the Father or feel Him, but we experience changes as a result of His work. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one that can be seen. The 12 disciples saw him physically. We see him in the pages of scripture. God the Holy Spirit is the one we feel but don't see. All three persons are equally God. Not only is the Holy Spirit God, but Jesus also said that we would be better off if we had the Holy Spirit with us instead of Jesus. Consider John 16, 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In his commentary on Acts, C. Peter Wagner put it this way. For the task of evangelizing the world, building Christ's church and expanding his kingdom the immediate presence of the third person of the Trinity would be more important to the disciples than the immediate presence of the second person of the Trinity. If we are serious about evangelism and our role in it, we would probably do well to celebrate Pentecost more than we do. Every Christmas we celebrate the coming of the second person of the Trinity. An annual celebration of the coming of the third person of the Trinity might help us better remember the task we've been given and the power we've been given to complete the task. So the first fact is the Holy Spirit is God. The second fact is that the Holy Spirit is personal. His preferred pronouns are he, him, and his. He has a mind and a will. He can be grieved. He can have fellowship. He is not some impersonal force. The third fact is that the Holy Spirit lives inside every believer. In the Old Testament, fire often symbolized the presence of God. In our passage from Acts, fire rested on the head of each believer in the room. That signified the presence of God with each believer. God the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside every believer at the moment of salvation and he never leaves. Theologians call that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It happens once in the believer's life and is permanent. God was no longer dwelling at the old temple in Jerusalem, but rather in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, the people of God. In effect, each follower of Christ is a mobile temple. The fourth fact is that the Holy Spirit bears fruit. Galatians 5, and 23 has a list of the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Presumably, the longer we live as Christians, the more fruit we should see. So the fruit of the Spirit is a sort of measuring stick that we can use to evaluate our spiritual growth. The fifth fact is that the Holy Spirit gives each believer a spiritual gift. There are several lists in the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament of the kinds of things that the Spirit might give. The best way to think about spiritual gifts is that each Christian has one gift that is some combination of the traits listed by Paul. Each believer's gift is customized for that believer. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has already given you a spiritual gift that is customed. Tailored combination of abilities that God wants you to use to uh, work to building and advancing the kingdom of God. Knowing what your spiritual gift is helps you to know how best to work for Christ. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, spending some time and effort to identify it is worthwhile. One way to start to identify your spiritual gift is to ask mature believers who know you, what abilities they see in you. Another way is to simply start serving. As you serve, God will reveal where he is using you. Finally, there are questionnaires that are designed to help identify spiritual gifts. If you would like such a questionnaire, catch me after the service and I can direct you to one. If you are listening to me and all this talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and spiritual gifts is new to you, come talk to me or one of the elders after the service. These things are marks of a follower of Jesus Christ, so we want to make sure you know how you can be a follower of Jesus if you aren't one already. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we want to make sure you understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. So now, now let's talk about what it means to be filled with the spirit and how we can be filled with the spirit. In Ephesians 5:18, Paul writes, "And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit." Two relevant observations. First, Paul commands us to be filled with the spirit. A command implies that being filled is not our natural state, and it implies that we can either obey or disobey. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is not a permanent condition. Second, Paul contrasts being filled with the Spirit with being drunk. When a person is ticketed for drunk driving, we sometimes say the person was driving under the influence. I think being filled with the Spirit means being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We will either be under the influence of our sin nature or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, unconfessed sin prevents us from being filled with the Spirit. When we confess our sins, God removes that barrier and we are once again filled with the Spirit. So I could reword my second point to say that evangelism happens when disciples confess their sins. A believer filled with the Spirit is like a sail of a boat that is filled with the wind. The wind directs the boat to move in a particular direction at a particular speed. Sin has the effect of turning or lowering the sail so that it isn't filled by the wind anymore. Confessing our sin puts the sail back in the correct position. Let's go back to our passage and read starting from verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. These devout Jews were the ones who had traveled to Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. Luke says they were from every nation under heaven, but that was a literary exaggeration. He was referring to Jews from the dispersion, or the diaspora. Historical sources say that there were 70 nations of the dispersion. Luke lists 15 of the nations, but his list probably isn't exhaustive. For example, he lists Cretans and Romans, but he doesn't list Greeks. He lists Parthians and Medes, which correspond to modern-day Iran, and Elamites and Mesopotamians, which correspond to modern-day Iraq. Syrians, however, are not listed. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia are all regions in modern-day Turkey. But other regions, such as Cilicia and Galatia, are not listed. It's far more probable that Jews from these unlisted nations were also present. Luke goes out of his way to mention that some of the visitors were proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and were considered fully Jewish. Luke himself was likely a proselyte. And I wonder if he heard about this event from other proselytes he knew who had been there when it happened. These visitors were probably at or near the temple. There must not have been much wind that day because the sound of the rushing wind from the house where the disciples were was loud and exceptional enough to draw their attention. So they approached the house to investigate what had happened and when they got close enough, they could hear their own native languages being spoken by the disciples and they were amazed. Daria and I recently returned from a trip to Turkey and if you stick around today after church, you will get to hear more about the trip. When we are over there, most of the people we interact with only speak Turkish. When I hear somebody speaking English, it's a pleasant surprise for me. But I know that those people studied English and learned how to speak it. If someone like Daria's father or brother, who never studied English, started speaking it, I would be amazed. We see a little bit of condescension here when the Jews say, Aren't these guys Galileans? In those days, Galileans were looked down upon by other Jews and were considered to be sort of fundamentalist rednecks or hillbillies who spoke with a funny accent. (laughs) The Jews from the nations of the dispersion considered themselves to be more culturally refined and sophisticated. It's not all that different from how the American political and entertainment elites from the East and West Coast view people who live in flyover country or the Bible Belt. One of the commentaries I read compared this Pentecost situation to a group of West Virginia coal miners trying to evangelize the Alumni Association of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. (laughs) Now, I think the disciples sometimes get a raw deal when it comes to how we think about their level of education. In that cultural setting, a 13-year-old was more like an 18-year-old in our culture. Art and movies have conditioned us to think of the disciples as bearded men who were similar in age to Jesus, but they were probably much younger than that. For example, we have some evidence in the New Testament that Peter was the only one of the 12 disciples over the age of 20. Peter might have been the natural spokesman for the group because he was the oldest. Furthermore, James and John were working with their father when Jesus called them to follow him. If they were working with their father, there is a strong possibility that neither had turned 13 yet. So there's a good chance that most of the disciples were still teenagers at this Pentecost. Despite their youth, all of them could speak, read, and write Aramaic. Most of them could probably read Hebrew too and possibly speak it. Peter, Andrew, and the other fishermen would have had a working knowledge of Greek as the language of commerce. Matthew, as a tax collector for the Romans, probably also knew some Latin. They lived in a multilingual world. Speaking a language other than their native language was not unusual in and of itself. The miracle at Pentecost was that they were speaking languages they had not learned previously. They were speaking existing human languages that their listeners understood. Write this down as the third point in your sermon notes. Evangelism happens when disciples speak the right language. Evangelism happens when disciples speak the right language. Now, I mean that in both a literal and a figurative sense. The literal sense is pretty obvious. When Daria and I are in Turkey, I do my best to follow conversations that are happening in Turkish. Sometimes I can pick up enough words to at least know what the conversation is about. At other times, though, I get pretty lost. Sometimes my mind will even drift away and I will mentally check out. The worst, though, is when someone says something and everyone in the room breaks into laughter in response. That is, everyone but me. I try not to ask Daria to translate for me because even though she makes it look easy, I know it's work, and it's tiring, and I want her to enjoy herself and relax. When we were teaching in Izmir, one of the men of the church translated all my messages into Turkish so the people could understand. Not being able to speak the language creates a barrier that requires an interpreter to overcome. But as I mentioned, there is a figurative sense in which we can speak the wrong language. One way that can happen is when we use a lot of church jargon. In the movie, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, there is a scene where the lead character has lied about being a Christian, and he's asked to share his testimony the next day. He goes home that night and looks up a bunch of churchy words and catchphrases that don't have any meaning for him, but are loaded with meaning for the people listening to him. The next day, he gives a little speech that includes the words and catchphrases And almost everyone listening finds his testimony to be moving. Well, we can do the opposite when we are witnessing. We can use words and catchphrases that are full of meaning to us, but might mean nothing to the person we're talking to. Such words as God, sin, the fall, heaven, grace, and faith might mean something different to the person we're witnessing to. We need to put our message into words that they understand, but we also need to do that in a way that doesn't come across as condescending or demeaning. It takes care and thought and time. We need to ask questions and we need to be good listeners. George Bernard Shaw once said, the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Just because we understand our message doesn't automatically mean that the person we're witnessing to understands it. Another way we can speak the wrong language has to do with assumptions. Quoting a Bible verse to someone who does not recognize the Bible as authoritative might not have much impact. It might be necessary to first establish why the Bible is authoritative or it might be necessary to establish why a source outside the human heart is authoritative. Again, asking questions and listening are things we need to do in order to get on the same page as the person we're witnessing to. Speaking the right language also means staying on message, or keeping the main thing the main thing. It's easy to get diverted into a discussion about hypothetical scenarios or secondary issues. We need discernment. Occasionally, what seems like a secondary issue might be a barrier for the person, and if we can clear up the issue and remove the barrier, the person might be open to hearing the gospel. In my experience, though, more often than not, the hypothetical scenarios and secondary issues are just devices for the person to avoid talking about their own sin or their unwillingness to submit to Christ's lordship. Now, all of this relates back to one of the alternative names for Pentecost I mentioned earlier. I said that Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest. I don't think it's a coincidence that God used the Feast of Harvest to do a miracle connected with spiritual harvest. According to Matthew 9, 37 through 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then, just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told the disciples that they would be laborers who would go into the world to reap a harvest of souls. We know that not all crops ripen at the same rate, and even not all of the same crop ripens up once. We can pray, we can be filled with the Spirit, and we can speak the right language, but some of the people will still resist the message. We see that in verse 13 of our passage when some of the Jews discount the miracle and accuse the disciples of being drunk. If some of them could flippantly explain a miracle, explain away a miracle of God that they could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears, we shouldn't be discouraged when our witnessing doesn't result in conversion. We are not responsible for converting anyone. Our responsibility is to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. The results are God's responsibility. Let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Write this down as the fourth and final point in your sermon notes. Evangelism happens when disciples leave the upper room. Evangelism happens when disciples pray. Evangelism happens when disciples are filled with the Spirit. Evangelism happens when disciples speak the right language. And evangelism happens when disciples leave the upper room. Verse 14 says Peter was standing with the other 11 apostles. They had been in the upper room among the 120 believers who were gathered together when the Holy Spirit came upon them with wind and fire. The noise of the wind drew the attention of the Jews outside, who came near the house to investigate what was going on. When they got close enough, they could hear the disciples speaking in their native languages. Their reaction created a commotion outside that drew the attention of the disciples. Peter and the other apostles probably then came out the front door of the house and addressed the crowd. If they had remained in the upper room, many of the Jews who had gathered outside would not have been able to hear Peter's sermon. Peter didn't wait for the people to enter the house. He went where the non-believers were. We have to be willing to go where the non-believers are if we're serious about witnessing to them. We have to be willing to leave whatever upper room we're sitting in. So my question for you is, what is your upper room? Is it this building? Is it your home? Where is it? Now let's face it, leaving the upper room isn't always easy. The upper room is comfortable. The upper room is filled with people we know and agree with. They know us and we know them. They understand us and we understand them. Spending some time in the upper room is good for us in our spiritual health, but spending all of our time there is not good. We need to get out in order to share our faith with people who are a breath away from an eternity in hell. If you do not have something in your schedule that regularly takes you out of your upper room and puts you into contact with non believers, then you need to intentionally find ways to get out. Being retired isn't an excuse. Being an introvert isn't an excuse. Let me put it another way. Someone in the past left their upper room to explain the gospel to you. Maybe even multiple people. In my case, the one I remember most clearly was a senior at my university named Rob. If he could leave his upper room to share the gospel with me, I can certainly leave my upper room to share the gospel with someone who needs to hear it. I'm not going to say a whole lot about the passage from Joel that Peter recited, but I will say a couple of things. If it's been a while since you read the book of Joel, it's only three chapters long, but it's significant because it represents a shift in tone among the prophets. Most of the prophets before Joel wrote pretty heavily about warning the people, calling them to repentance, and pronouncing woe on them if they fail to repent. All of them, however, included at least a glimmer of hope. In Joel's case, almost the entire second half of the book is giving the people hope. In the first half of the book, when Joel talks about the day of the Lord, he's referring to judgment. But in the second half of the book, the day of the Lord refers to a time when God will pour out his spirit on all people, men and women, young and old, and he will make things right again. Peter knew his Jewish listeners were looking forward to that day, and he was telling them that that day had arrived. Luke went out of his way in chapter 1 to tell us that the group of 120 in the upper room included both men and women, and young and old. Peter recognized that the Spirit had been poured out on them. The implication, therefore, was that God was there to make things right. The other thing I want to mention is that Peter quoted Joel's words in the last days. That expression, last days, refers to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Peter and the apostles were in the last days in Acts 2, and we are in the last days today. Even though the last days have lasted about 2,000 years, they won't last forever. Every day is one day closer to Christ's return. There is an urgency to the task of fulfilling the Great Commission. There is an urgency to the task of evangelism. Let's be disciples who pray. Let's be disciples who are filled with the Spirit. Let's be disciples who speak the right language. Let's be disciples who leave the upper room. Pray with me. God the Father, thank you for your word and thank you for pouring your spirit out on us so that we could be saved. Thank you for the mercy you have on the lost. We ask you to give us opportunities to share our faith with those who do not yet know you. And we ask you to give us the eyes to see those opportunities when they arise. We also ask you to give us wisdom as how to take advantage of those opportunities Lead us, Father, to people who are ripe for harvest. God the Son, you have given us a commission that is truly great, and you have given us the power we need to fulfill it. Thank you for entrusting such work to us. Thank you that every day is one day closer to your return. We ask you to come soon, Lord Jesus. God the Holy Spirit, thank you for living in us, bringing forth spiritual fruit in our lives, and giving us abilities to do kingdom work that we wouldn't have otherwise. We ask you to convict us of sins that we may confess it and you may fill us, direct us and empower us. We ask you to give us the words we need when we are sharing our faith. We trust you to take what we do and say in faith and use it to lead others to salvation. We also ask you to prepare those who will hear the gospel so that the message finds receptive hearts and minds. We pray especially that you will work in our family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers who do not yet know Christ so that they may be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.